This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome to the program, friends. This is beginning to, to, to be a habit, and it's a very nice habit. Uh, not only joining you every, uh, every week, but also announcing a new affiliate to the program. Uh, always pleased to do that. Please send more. Today we welcome WIMO 1300 AM Atlanta, Georgia. Well, salute. WIMO 1300. Welcome aboard. And keep them coming, folks. Keep them coming. I believe, including our wonderful flagship here at uh, the new AM740 Zoomer Radio, that brings our total to five stations. Now, spreading the news, spreading the truth, or our version of it anyway. Uh, Of course, we wrapped up the Olympics uh, tonight. A favorite moment uh, for me was uh, Ray Davies, front man of the, uh, the Kinks, singing one of the most emotional, heartfelt uh, versions of Waterloo Sunset I've heard in uh, in many years. Just wonderful. And, of course, uh, The Who and a uh, great grand finale, uh, a great way to to, uh, to finish the Olympics as uh, they celebrate the best, I suppose, of what humankind is supposed to be uh, all about. And uh, we'll see you four years down the road in Rio. See you in Rio. Sounds like a road picture with, with uh, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, doesn't it? <laughs> Anyway, celebrating the best, yes. Well, tonight we're going to look at, uh, I guess, the darkest uh, aspects of of, um, humankind, and we're going to probe around inside the human mind. And, uh, well, obviously, going from the high of the Olympics to the the travails and the upcoming trial of accused Colorado shooter James Holmes is on the menu tonight. And uh, as I've been mentioning throughout the week on the uh, the promo that's been running here at the station now that we've had a little time to step back and particularly time to to grieve the uh, the victims 12 uh in all and the injured uh it's time to step back and start asking some serious questions and there are numerous questions around this James Egan Holmes whenever they start attaching three names to a shooter uh you start to ask questions Mark David Chapman uh, it, you know the list goes on and on, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about whether or not 
James Holmes. You're all thinking this. Whether or not he's a Manchurian candidate, you've seen him sitting in the courthouse in Arapahoe County with that glazed look on his face. He looks absolutely stunned. And if, if you'll forgive me, uh, there's also a very gentle look to this fellow. He does not look like a crazed killer. He certainly looks dazed and confused and out of it. But he doesn't strike me as being a madman. Is it possible he's a programmed assassin? We're going to discuss, and we'll invite you to join the program in just a little while. First, let me introduce our esteemed panel. First of all, uh, joining us on the line, he holds multiple degrees from Harvard University and Dartmouth College, amongst others. He's had the most expensive American education money come by. He's an investigator, author, and um, we're going to find out the the status of a... um, a film that he's been working on entitled The Enemy Within, Psychic Warfare. And, of course, he is the author of Project Soul Catcher, Secrets of Cyber and Cybernetic Warfare Revealed. A great pleasure to welcome back to the program Robert Duncan. Robert, how are you? Good. It's uh, good to hear from you again. Good to have you aboard, Robert. Let me also introduce well, to, in studio a media scientist, a JFK assassination researcher, broadcaster, a playwright, Nelson Thal. Hey, Nelson. Good being here, Richard, once again. Thank you. All right. And uh, sitting across the table, as uh, as delightful as ever, is uh, Ms. Jane Steele, playwright, researcher, writer, James Joyce scholar. And uh, welcome to you, Ms. Steele. It's a pleasure to be back. First uh, question to you, Robert. Um, as someone who has studied mind control techniques, cybernetic warfare... What were your first impressions when you first saw James Egan Holmes sitting in a courtroom? Well, it was obvious to me he was disassociated. And then as we got uh, more news, he had split personalities. And, uh, you know, immediately uh, red flags go up for me. Um, and, it's, you know, what bothers me is I, I've tried to get hold of many uh, <clears throat> potential Manchurian candidates and interview them, but once they're in prison, you have no access. So I can't put them under hypnosis. I can't do what I do to figure out if they were programmed or not. Um, so it's a little frustrating uh, for me. I've interviewed over 650 people uh, in the last 10 years that say they're under government mind control. Many of them say they're in the Manchurian candidate. I deprogrammed three. I went to the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, met with 26 senators, with the head of the L.A. FBI, uh, and one of them was programmed to kill Hillary Clinton when she was president. And, you know, I deprogrammed the person. Uh, and I'll, I'll go into detail a little bit later of how the programming works and the different techniques in methods, but uh, she wouldn't meet with our group, ironically. So, yeah, I'm very suspicious. I've written in my book, you should expect uh, a, 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 you know, far more random shooters. I call them psycho bombs. If they have specific targets, they're called programmed assassins, Manchurian um, candidates, uh, mind control patsies. They go by a lot of different names. And, um, you know, I looked for them, and I said there would be more of them. And, in fact, I even said in the book uh, that the reason will be government 
you know, has to use terror, has to use fear to control the people, and uh, they want to take away gun rights for Americans. Robert Duncan uh, on the line. Let me uh, get Nelson uh, Thal into the uh, the fray here. Nelson, for those, uh, uh, maybe they've heard the term, but they don't really understand uh, what it means. What is a Manchurian candidate? Well, of course, it's a programmed assassin. It comes from Richard Condon's book, The Manchurian Candidate. And, Richard, it's interesting to note when we discuss these things that there was a law created by Condon called Condon's Law. And he said that when you don't know the whole truth, your worst fears are bound to be close. So I'd like to ask Dr. Duncan, what are his worst fears about what we've been seeing here with this uh, massacre? I, my worst, well, this is what my research has shown, and I worked with a consortium of scientists on this research project for uh, about, you know, eight years or a decade, and it looks, you know, the, the closest um, uh, estimate that I can reach is about there are 10,000 Manchurian candidates in the works that can be used at any time around the world. And the CIA, there were laws passed, the CIA can't assassinate other leaders of other countries. And so they can get around the law by using indirection. They're called uh, handles uh, or handlers. And so the, this is, you know, my fear is that there is a secret army that's not accountable to anybody that can be used at any time. Uh, to control politics, uh, remove democracy as we know it, uh, cause havoc. Um, it, it just, it's really, it's quite scary. Let me, uh, let me work uh, Ms. Steele into the, um, in the proceedings here. The interesting background uh, of this uh, James Egan Holmes uh, was studying neuroscience. What do you make of that? Is that significant? Well, I think that would have a lot to do with the psychological warfare programs that they have, and perhaps he was involved in that. Um, they have another uh, assassin, uh, the Sikh temple assassin. His name was Michael Wade. Wade um, Page, yeah. That's right, Page. Now, he was also in the psychological program with the army. So I, I believe that these assassins are indoctrinated in these programs with handlers, Okay, so Robert, let's pick up on that point. Neuroscience, he was studying neuroscience. His, his, um, his mother was a psychiatric nurse, I believe, and his father was involved with, with a... Um, uh, somehow they were involved in DARPA, yeah, right? Yeah, neuroscience research. And who was that guy, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, that went on a killing spree? He was a psychologist at our, an Army uh, research lab. This was a while back, but it's interesting yeah. to note, yeah, the connection between uh, these research projects. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'm going too far, but the Nazis used to kill off uh, all their scientists after the project was done. And I've worked for several DARPA projects, and... It's creepy to me that I, I wrote the artificial intelligence code, tracked the Soviet nuclear submarine fleet, and there were eight of us, and now there are only three. Weird accidents, all plausible deniability. You know, it's, what do you think about that? Uh, 
Go ahead, yeah, Nelson. Many, uh, last year, we had a report and started detailing the psychiatrists that were programming the sleepers. As you say, there was a death list that we started. And that not uh-huh. just we started, but that we picked up on, and they were. It seemed like they were now trying to get rid of the psychiatrists that were programming these sleepers. Yeah. Well, this um, he uh, he was um, a research assistant intern at the Salk Institute at the University of California at San Diego. Uh, Holmes was, and this Salk Institute apparently teamed up with DARPA, um, and they were working on something called the Peak Soldier Performance Program. What do we know about that? What what were they doing? Do we know? Ooh, I do not know, but I worked on the Soldier 2000 project um, that was to wire soldiers up to basically create cyborgs with, uh, you know, common technologies, monitor their heart rates, their vital functions, uh, give feedback, uh, visual feedback uh, within a heads-up display. So I'm, I'm not sure what his project was, but... Um, but obviously, something top secret, so we had to pass all the tests to get that clearance. Maybe we'd just uh, update the audience for us on, is is it the, the purpose of developing these uh, type of assassins is so that um, should they be caught or killed or just caught, that uh, their brains and their mission and the people behind them, it can be wiped from their memory using the chips implanted in their brain or the post-hypnotic suggestions? Both. Uh, the modern-day technology does not require implants, although those work very well. But uh, from MKUltra, uh, the CIA's top-secret program and human uh, behavior modification, these were many of their goals, uh, and that's to create split-personality spies so they could pass information without even knowing it, and they could commit murder and not know that they just did it and pass the polygraph test. So they're the perfect spies. So uh, a lot of these projects, uh, they're called super spies. All right, we'll take a time out. Um, uh, hang on, Robert, stay where you are. Ms. Steele, Nelson Thal, likewise. We're discussing whether or not James Holmes is a Manchurian candidate. The Aurora, Colorado Theater shooter or accused in the uh, the murder of 12 individuals wounding 58 others was he a programmed assassin and if so why back with more of the conspiracy show don't go away welcome back Apparently, ABC doesn't have the latest on James Holmes, but we do right here on The Conspiracy Show. Joining us on the line is Robert Duncan, the author of Project Soul Catcher, Secrets of Cyber and Cybernetic Warfare Revealed, Volume 2, in-studio media scientist, assassination researcher Nelson Thal, and playwright researcher Ms. Jane Steele. Now, um, it's interesting the, 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 the profile that we're being given of this character by the, the mainstream media. Uh, a number of um, media outlets have described him as uh, being uh, uncommunicative, stubborn, socially inept. And then we have, uh, after he uh, uh, applied to the, uh, the University of Illinois um, in his resume, um, he received some recommendation letters, and he, it said that he takes an active role in his education, brings a great amount of intellectual and emotional maturity into the classroom. Uh, this was one uh, letter he received. 
saying that he, he works well with others. Uh, he's a very effective group leader on assignments. Does that, someone, does that sound like someone who's uncommunicative and stubborn? No, quite the opposite. Um, now, this, this report isn't coming from the mainstream media. This is coming from uh, uh, people who have, I guess, delved in a little deeper into James Holmes' background. But it's interesting, uh, Robert Nelson and Ms. Jane Steele, that now the, the judge in this case are, are basically telling all the labs and all the, the, the schools uh, that, that James either worked for or, or uh, attended to stifle, to be quiet, not say anything. What, what is that all about, Robert Duncan? I actually think one of the other guests could answer that better, but my, this is part of plausible deniability, and we all know the mass media uh, is run by, you know, four different companies, and that the DOD has a lot of say uh, in what's allowed to be said on, you know, media, just like, you know, Chinese government or the Russian government's. We're, we're in an information bubble, and so they, uh, this is a patsy. Well, they have to uh, paint a picture of him as just being a lone psychopath and uh, story over, and that's what uh, usually the general public wants to hear. They don't want to delve into it or think there's uh, more to this story because it, it makes them scared. Ms. Steele, what, what do you make of uh, the, the way he's being portrayed in the media uh, as opposed to, uh, well, who, who he actually is? I mean, you really have to, to do some digging to find out, you know, what, what this James Holmes character is all about and where he attended and, and, and what he studied and so forth. Well, I think if you look at the before and after James Holmes, you know, there are pictures of him. He looks totally different. Um, it almost looks and it appears that it's not the same person. He has different eyes, different nose. So the question is, who is the real James Holmes, I suppose? Um, and could he be, um, you know, I mean, he's a Manchurian candidate for sure, but who is he? Which one is he? Uh, could he be a clone? Could he be a synthetic automaton? Could he be a robotoid? And those were created about 40 years ago by the Russians and the Americans um, with implanted chips. Robotoids. Robotoids. What are ro- robotoids? Yes. Well, it's not, it doesn't have a soul. It's almost like an animal, but it looks like a human with implanted RNA, DNA holograms. Do they even have to do that, though? Do they have to create a clone if they can essentially uh, implant, uh, you know, their own, if they can brainwash someone? Why, do they need to create a robotoid? What, Robert, are you familiar with the robotoid? Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with that term. Um, you, what they're probably doing is experimenting with many different technologies. Um, and a particular technology that I study is uh, called EEG cloning. And uh, you know, most people don't believe this exists, but that's the state of the art. It's electroencephalograph, meaning reading brain waves and also cloning other people's brain waves. So you can actually do this with microwaves um, uh, to create any sort of emotion. So uh, Wade, for example, uh, you could in- increase, uh, one colonel said, we can create red-hot anger in the subject using a particular radio frequency. Um, so you can control people's emotions, you can make them you know, falling in love, 
like the Shooter, Reagan, Hinkley, um, the whole bunch of games, the psychological games that can be played with the target um, to make them, you know, uh, do their evil deeds. And, yeah, he seems way too disassociated. And, you know, the, the psychiatrists are going to come up with this same answer because that's you got to remember psychiatrists are programmed you know this is textbook i follow the symptoms and so they're not looking for programmed assassins so they're not going to find it um yeah how 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 are they doing it these days i mean we we we've we've learned about uh how the the cia uh, uh, borrowed heavily from from the nazis for their mk ultra program and 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 used mass trauma uh, and uh, uh, um, um, sexual ritual abuse and so forth in order to bring on a disassociation or a disassociative disorder. How do they do it now in 2012? So they're, they're still using all the, uh, the same Nazi brainwashing techniques. It's just gone wireless. So uh, it, it's, it's, it, they added some head games into it which if your listeners are interested, they can read about in my book. Um, but they're still using a lot of the same techniques. But here, if you, can, if you can change people's emotions, I mean, over populations or the individual, you can make them do, uh, you know, you, almost anything. You can alter their behavior, and they can still split personalities, and it takes time. Um, but even while you're sleeping, you can be programmed with subliminals. Um, so they, they use a, a, a technique called voice of God weapons. So often these targets, not the target we're talking about, at least we don't have that information, uh, John Holmes, but they can, uh, uh, using a microwave hearing effect, um, basically send the voice of God kill on my command, or I'll uh, sort of lay down your weapons, or, you know, whatever it might be. Or they can use voice transformation, use a relative's voice, and make them believe that, you know, they're uh, telepathically synced to another relative that's giving them uh, good advice. Um, so, yeah, in this particular case, it's it's unclear unless we have access to them, and that's what uh, frustrates me. I I was at the same dorm in Harvard as the Unabomber, not at the same time, same dorm, and I tried to get hold of him to see if he was a programmed assassin, Manchurian candidate. I the jails, the prisons would not allow me my letters to get through. Could never get hold of him. Um, so it's hard to study these people once they connect their acts of violence to see if they are actually a Manchurian candidate or not. Now, uh, Dr. Duncan, when you talk about your book specifically, are you talking about the Project Soul Catcher, the la- is that volume two, your latest? Yes. And uh, you talk about in that book about the secrets of cybernetic warfare. Um, tell us, who's winning the cyber warfare right now in your judgment? <laughs> the, Sol- uh, uh, the Russians, the French... Um, yeah, the, well, the Chinese, who who would be winning the war? Is it possible to tell where the it, where it yeah, is right so, now? Yeah, it's a it's a new Cold War, um, and 
all the military literature, if you read it, says neuroscience is the big game changer for warfare now. Um, and in terms of who's winning, well, certainly not the human race. <laughs> They're taking all. Um, and you have to look at the superpower. Right now, the uh, United States is the only superpower. But, uh, you know, China and Russia are obviously uh, heavily involved uh, in it as well. And it's always been the, the goal of any country to create the perfect soldier, the perfect warrior, give them more power, keep them awake without sleep, add intelligence, you know, new senses. Um, so cybernetics about adding senses to the human perception. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's here in about 15, 20 years, and the rest of the population will wake up. So, so if, the mo- if the motive here is to, uh, is to create enough uh, violence that, uh, that you try, the end result is to f- try and force Americans to give up their weapons, uh, what's, what sort of um, strategy and tactics can we sort of forecast we're going to see in the future, in the not-too-distant future? Yeah, and here, here's uh, something else that the CIA studies, is how to create hatred or anger at specific you know, social groups or racial groups. Um, and um, if you can do that, well, what's the, what's the strategy? Uh, you can make the Taliban fight the al-Qaeda, and it's a war of attrition, or you can make China get angry with you know some other country, and that way you don't have to fight your own wars. It's like when we were doing the Cold War with Russia, we supplied Iraq, and, and the Russians supplied Iran, and they sort of fought our wars for us. So you'll see a lot more of that. Robert, why do you suppose uh, if Holmes is a programmed assassin, why would his handlers or his programmers allow him to live? Why not? make it nice, neat, and tidy, and have the shooter essentially, uh, well, killed, uh, as, they, as they often are, the Virginia Tech shooter, etc. Why was he allowed to live? doesn't make sense. I think, yeah, I, I think it, everything's imperfect. So I said there were about 10,000 people around the world being programmed right now. Only a small percentage actually are successful Manchurians. And I think it was a mistake. They assumed the cops would kill him or he would kill himself. Because remember, he booby-trapped his house. He had no intention of going back home and hiding or anything like that. Uh, So I think it was just an accident. It's interesting because it's quite a contrast, obviously, between uh, uh, James Holmes, quite a learned young young man, a Ph.D. candidate in neuroscience, and then we have uh, uh, Wade Michael Page. Um, You know, there's been obviously pictures all over the Internet of him uh, involved in these white supremacist groups and and, and so forth. Um, What's the difference here? I mean, is do you also see this Wisconsin shooter? Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the alleged perpetrator of this massacre in, in, uh, at the Sikh temple to be also a, a programmed assassin? Well, you, you know, it's just it's probability, and, and, and that's the great thing about programmed assassins, perfect, plausible deniability. Um, and I, I told you how they've been uh, working on how to create hate. Well, it was in a hate group, all right. And um, so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a possibility 
uh, that he was another experiment in creating fear amongst Americans. Um, but, uh, you know, without, he's dead now, so we can't really test him, find out <laughs> uh, what was done to him. No, I mean, and it's, pro- it's just as probable that he was everything we've been led to believe, that he was just a hateful, ignorant uh, a, a human being. I mean, obviously, not all of these massacres are perpetrated by programmed assassins. Wouldn't you agree, Nelson? Or, or do you think that, mo- that most of them are? Well, I think in this situation, there's all the trappings of uh, the fact that this guy didn't have the ability to put together the operation that the authorities are claiming that he did with the uh, the number of people killed, etc. And if you go back to Columbine and the others, there's always this same pattern. In Columbine, the two kids were shot in the back. Uh, how'd that happen? Um, there's and how did the there's no way this one man could have pulled this off. He didn't have the finances to do it. He didn't have the wherewithal to do it. He didn't have the ability to booby trap his apartment that way. And the first pictures that we've been shown, the two pictures, they showed us two different men and told us it was the same guy. Are we talking about James Holmes now? Or yeah, are we talking Holmes. about, uh, about Wade Holmes. Michael Page? Okay. Yeah, Holmes. So uh, uh, in both cases, I think that these are programmed assassins. And I think that there's there's good reason to show that the behind the scenes there's a hidden agenda to put these guys out there and create violence. All right, let's uh, step away for a moment, do some business, come back, and we'll discuss accused Colorado shooter James Holmes, a programmed assassins, a programmed assassin. Uh, get on board. Phone lines available to you now until the top of the hour. Robert Duncan on the line, the uh, author of Project Soul Catcher, Volume 2, Ms. Jane Steele and Nelson Tholen Studio. Back with more in a moment. When the mother of James Holmes was reached at her San Diego home today and first told what had happened overnight, she expressed little surprise. You have the right person, she told ABC News. I need to call the police. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Painted uh, red, he said he was uh, the Joker. He's a guy that has so left reality that he now is in this this make-believe world that he's part of the Batman world. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Interesting how the the major media outlets are are, uh, trying to portray uh, James Holmes, again, as a a crazed, isolated uh, sociopath, and yet... If you look at his his life and his career path and his his um, his post secondary education uh, uh, path, it's quite the opposite. Up until about four months ago, and that's when everything just appeared to go south. Just 
I mean, this guy just completely snapped up until that point. Well, here uh, we have him applying to the University of Illinois, and uh, included in that application were a number of letters of recommendation in which he was said to have intellectual and emotional maturity. And uh, this is a Ph.D. candidate, very thoughtful, intelligent young man, worked with, uh, with underprivileged children at a, at a summer camp at one point, um, uh, was a great mentor, and now we're told, all of a sudden, he's some Batman, you know, uh, he's some living in some fantasy world. It, 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 the, the two just don't mesh. Now, it could, could they do this in, in, in four months, Robert? Does it happen that quickly? I mean, that... Uh, that... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That uh, is actually when it's most effective um, because if the programming goes on too long, let's say it goes to a year, the target eventually figures out they're being manipulated and then it's less effective. And that was part of the reason I wrote the book is, is to hopefully stop uh, you know, many of the more of these incidences. But the, the people that they choose have to isolate themselves. It usually occurs in the first four months when they don't realize you know, that this technology exists, uh, that they can be reprogrammed, and, and their mind can literally be taken over. I mean, this is the new generation of warfare uh, with perfect plausible deniability. Um, and, and so, uh, yes, is the answer, that it, you, the targets that they choose to do these violent events will happen very quickly. Well, his, his parents, his father, again, a mathematician, worked at a, a firm that was closely involved with DARPA, his mother, a psychiatric nurse. Uh, are these things often done with the complicity of the parents? No. Uh, uh, although they believe that's the case, uh, that's, that's part of what's induced, uh, and so the, the target will isolate themselves from their family, from their friends, and then, you know, it's a, it's a better cover story uh, that they're a lone psycho. So, n- no, the, it, it generally is not true that the family is uh, behind it. But with Wade, uh, you mentioned Wade, and he, he, was, uh, he, he was trained in psychological operations. Um, we should just well. remind, remind listeners we're talking about uh, 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 Michael Wade Page, the, the, uh, the, uh, the shooter in the, the Sikh Temple massacre in Wisconsin. Okay, yeah. so, uh, yeah, continue, sorry. Oh, yeah, and um, so it's interesting that it seems like there are so many shooters related to psychological operations or psychology, psychiatry in some form or another, or in John Holmes' uh, um, neuroscience. Um, y- you know, I, I don't know if there's a coincidence there, uh, but uh, the Unabomber targeted several artificial intelligence programmers at, uh, you know, MIT and some other uh, institutes. And so in terms of program assassins, it's almost like they're trying to get rid of anybody who knows their secrets how they control human beings. Let's go to the phones and begin with Moose Jaw and uh, welcome Paul to The Conspiracy Show. Good evening, Paul. Good evening. Hi there. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yes. Uh, uh, I've heard you mention MKUltra a few times in the past, and 
In the 1990s, I heard a lecture by a gentleman named Bill Schneblin, who actually claimed that the CIA was taking children out of Canadian orphanages to use for their experiments on mind control. And eventually the Canadian government found out and threatened to expose it if they didn't stop it. And I was wondering if any of the people you have uh, on the phones had heard similar stories, or is this just one of these uh, pie-in-the-sky things? Just uh, hold on, hold on, Paul. We'll get to that uh, answer. Robert uh, um, and uh, Ms. Steele, Nelson, Thal can weigh in on that when we come back. Uh, well, uh, we certainly know that the CIA, uh, along with the Canadian government, was complicit with uh, some experimentation. Uh, involving mind control at Allen Memorial Hospital and McGill University back in the 1950s. So who knows, but we'll find out when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Lieutenant Brian Murphy remains in critical condition, ambushed by Page, shot eight times as he tried to help another victim. We have a one officer shot. Subject with a gun, balding, white t-shirt, officer down. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Wade Page, James Holmes, we had the, uh, the shooter at uh, Fort Hood. Um, a while back. Uh, are they programmed assassins, Manchurian candidates? Robert Duncan on the line, the author of Project Soul Catcher, Volume 2, Nelson Thal, media scientist, and Ms. Jane Steele, researcher in studio. Uh, Nelson, let me ask you, what do you, how do you think this trial is going to play out? Well, like the others, I think that he'll plead guilty and therefore he'll be uh, put away and uh, no one will get near him. And the, again, remember, will the real Holmes please stand up? Uh, they've been so blatant. They've showed us two pictures of Holmes, and they're trying to t- make the people believe that it's the same guy. It's two different men. There's the original Holmes that was trained, etc., uh, and has probably gone into the witness protection program now. And on the other hand, there is the uh, the one who they brought into court, the the uh, who's probably just uh, his mind's been wiped and uh, he knows nothing he and he had nothing to do with it. All right, and uh, Robert Duncan, what do you think is going to happen in this trial? Uh, well, no, I, I sort of agree with uh, Nelson. Mm-hmm. Just said, uh, you, you know, they, they, it's the way the media plays everything, and so whether it is the same guy or not, uh, they've done something to them. To, to this man. And so if he were Patsy, uh, we won't know. They've wiped his mind. What do you think is going through his mind, if anything, at this point? I mean, we, uh, let's assume that this is James uh, Egan Holmes sitting in this courtroom. It, what is he, what's going through his mind? Is he, is he still being controlled, and, and, or is he just out there on his own trying to figure out and piece together what the heck happened to me the last four months? Where have I been? I, 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 they could have given them uh, drugs. It's typical with the uh, mind control project. Keep them in a disassociated state. Use hypnosis on them. Um, so he's he's probably just sitting there outside his body, like what what is going on? You know, completely 
disassociated in every way and has no idea what he's done or where he's going. And we and we will never get contact with them again. Well, this is the same with Mark David Chapman, right? He suddenly, uh, six months later, decides to plead guilty because a voice told him to. All of a sudden, yep. there's no trial, there's no investigation. So you're saying that the same thing is going to happen here, Nelson, right? Yeah, that, that's my prediction. Now, do some of these um, candidates, these Manchurian candidates, come out of the amnesia because, of course, they've been programmed, they have amnesia now, they're disassociated, Usually they kill them, or as you said, they put them in jail. Do they ever come out of this state? Good question, Miss Steele. Robert, did they come out of this state occasionally? Uh, I, I, I have had uh, only three successful reprogrammings of Manchurian candidates, but this was before they were activated or triggered. Um, and you can't, there is a way to get them out of it, but it requires a lot of work. Um, and uh, if they're in jail, now that's just going to disassociate them more. Um, so I, I would say no, they won't come back out of it. What about Sirhan Sirhan? Here's a guy who who's seems now uh, to recognize, uh, if you believe in that, uh, in, in this particular theory, that he was a Manchurian candidate. He seems to have sort of come to and, and said, no, listen, I <laughs> I didn't do it. I have no memory of doing it. Uh, I mean, that might be an instance where someone has actually uh, come out of this disassociative state 40 yeah, years later, which, mind you, but... Yeah, isn't, isn't that sad? I mean, imagine you're one of these victims, basically, used as a patsy, and you do come out of it, and you have no recollection, but you're being punished for something that your mind did not do. It was someone else's mind behind the crime. Uh, that's just sad. That's a total nightmare scenario. I mean, who's, who, yeah. who are, who's targeted? Um, I mean, could I be walking down the street, someone basically pulls over, throws me in a trunk, drugs me, uh, takes me to some lab and starts brainwashing me? I mean, who do they target? So that's old school. Okay. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. Uh, no, you'd be targeted in the privacy of your own home now. And they, they generally target people that, uh, okay, you know, whistleblowers are a good propor- you know, proportion of uh, the, the targets out there. But let's assume you've, you've said nothing wrong uh, against the government. You're not a protester, peace activist, or anything like that. Um, they still need random sample sets uh, uh, on the world's population to see if the technology works and to make sure there's no pattern. Um, and so, yeah, you could be targeted randomly, for sure. Richard, I, I, I don't think it's coincidental that um, uh, the Bourne legacy is opening up at the theaters today. Excellent point, and, yeah. And, and it's all about a plan is put into motion by a top-secret government program to wipe out all the genetically modified killers it created, one such operative must flee in order to save his life. Now, why would they release a movie like that? Are they, Hollywood is trying to tell us the truth? Is that the idea? Well, they've all, not Hollywood per se, but there's always been, as you and I have talked about for the last 20 or more years, the parallax views, the enemy of the state. There's been movies here and there that are real art forms, meaning they update consciousness and it's the real news. How do they get past the gatekeepers? Because um, it's just Hollywood. You go to a movie, you sit in the dark, and uh, people, uh, the ruling elite, just um, don't find that as threatening because it's a movie. It's not a written book or 
by anybody who can it, go in. Sorry, yeah, sorry, you, go ahead. You're you're totally right. Matt Damon was one of my friends uh in college and you know, so I love his his movies and uh he just opened up here where I'm living and had the opening. And it's like those kind of movies. They tell the truth, but as long as people don't believe it, it's fictional, then uh, it's not a threat, but they're trying to get people used to the, this idea. Minds can be controlled. Uh, and so the future generation will be uh, quite accepting of these newer technologies and that this is what our government does, and they won't think anything of it. There won't be a revolution. Are they using the uh, television sets to mind control the uh, masses? Yeah, subliminals are in everything. They're broadcasting it over the world, and you can uh, entrain entire populations. So the Russians and the U.S. were in a secret, uh, what they called psychotronic war in the 1970s, beaming each other microwaves of certain frequencies to placate the population so they didn't want to go to war. And the Russians uh, looked like they thought we were the aggressors, so we a microwave them the same signal over their population. But, yeah, the subliminals are over the television. They're in movies. Uh, you can put them in power lines, uh, Glenn, anywhere. Because the brain is an electrochemical magnetic system. So you can use chemicals, put it in the water supply or airplanes. Cell phone towers. Right around. Cell phone towers. Anywhere. And they can anywhere. read the minds. Is that not correct? As reported by Colonel Bearden yeah. in his book Oblivion? Most people won't believe that, but it is true. Uh, technology exists. Yeah. Let's go to the phones and uh, say hello to John in the Buckeye State. John, welcome. Uh, good to have Ohio aboard the program. Yeah, Richard. Great show tonight. Thank you. Hey, uh, I, was, uh, I was just going to make a comment, but then I kind of thought of a question while I was sitting on hold there. Um, I believe, you know, in the Manchurian candidates, I think this could be, you know, it's, it's definitely possible and true. And um, I was like uh, all the mo- like the gentleman there on your panel just stole my thunder. They're talking about the you know the, how they did it in the films and everything. And um, there was a I believe a film years ago called uh, Telethon I think where people would just kind of be uh, I think it was from the 70s where people would just kind of be in their everyday mode and they'd either hear a sound or or a word or something and it would uh, you know put them into their you know do their to go blow up something or kill or whatever. Some sort of triggering mechanism like in the Manchurian Candidate. Why not pass the time with a little solitaire? Yes, but I was, I was, the question, my question was, um, do you think, you know, either you and your panel, do you, um, do you think that, um, it's sort of like these films, like, however far back they've been since the Manchurian Candidate was, what, in the 60s? Or, or, yes, or, yes, 1960, okay, do you I think that maybe, um, it's sort of like a conditioning process, sort of like the, similar, like a parallel to the UFO, uh, you know, like how they've been showing films about UFOs for years and aliens. Do you think it's sort of like, on a parallel, uh, you know, trying to condition it, uh, yeah, us to a this parallel conditioning process. Do you think the two? Yeah. If I could weigh in, I think I, I think there's an argument could be made that by fictionalizing something like this, it takes it out of the realm uh, for most people, out of the realm of possibility, because now all all you have to do is bring it up in a subject or in a conversation. Uh, you know, about the possibility that these people are programmed assassins, and someone said, oh, come on, they just made a movie about that. It's Hollywood. So by fictionalizing it, uh, in essence, you're able to then hide it in plain view. That I don't know uh, what the rest of the panel thinks. That's just my thought. Robert? I agree completely. 
I agree. Okay. Completely. All right. Virginia's in Hamilton. Uh, Virginia, welcome to the program. Good evening. Um, this is incredibly fascinating. I remember about 50 years ago, and I'm going to go back a long time, watching a black and white film, which was called, and all of the people that know old silver films, My Son John. If you can, ditto, if you can get into that and find out the, the context of that, it was exactly what you were talking about. And that's 50 years ago, uh, wherein the family uh, had a very brilliant young man who went to university, and he was, without his knowledge, actually conscripted into exactly the kind of scenario we are speaking about. In the end, of course, he met his demise violently, like what we're speaking about, these poor chaps that have gone through um, these dreadful situations, and they've, they've been killed and killed themselves, whatever. But... The final note of that film was uh, a voiceover which said, watch out, they are looking for you. You are brilliant, you are clever, then you are suspect. Interesting. And I'll never forget that. As long as I live, I thought, my God, what does that mean? And you are talking about the very same thing today, which I pondered over years ago, 50 years ago. If you can get that black and white film... My son, John, we'll look into that, Virginia. Yes. Thank you so much for the call. And uh, uh, thank you, Ms. Steele and Nelson Thal here in studio. Uh, Robert, what is the, the status of... Um, uh, at some point, there was some talk that you were going to be producing a film called The Enemy Within Psychic Warfare. Uh, yeah, the, yeah the, the script's uh, been finalized. Uh, started doing a little shooting on it, uh, ran out of funding, uh, so it's in stasis right I, now. Yeah, I can imagine getting a movie like that made would be very difficult. And also the, the, the book, uh, Hacking the Human Mind, is that now available? Uh, it, it's actually changed its title, and no, it's being edited. should come out in better months. Excellent. Before you go, Dr. Duncan, what can we do? Get some aluminum caps? People listening, what can they do to protect themselves from this? Uh, unfortunately, they can't afford it. Superconducting shielding. It's a quantum mechanical effect, uh, and you basically imprison yourself. Uh, there are some jammers out there. If you think you're being targeted by these technologies, um, passive shielding, uh, and... Uh, it's it's very complicated. In my next book, a lot of the technologies will be explained in detailed science. That's an interesting point. I mean, we 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 don't have much time here, but I just want to pursue that just in the in the one or two minutes that remain. I mean, the, you have you have the the ten thousand you say uh, Manchurian candidates out there, but then you have mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Uh, maybe 10 times that, that are just being electronically harassed and surveilled and driven to madness. Is that correct? Yeah, there are, there are many projects going on because this is the greatest weapon system, most evil, devised by humankind. And so uh, only the, the ones that are so obvious do they come forward and I can get in contact with them and do interviews and some research with them. But, yeah, I, I imagine there are plenty more. You know, we all may be uh, subjected to uh, these influences in one way or another. So it may, the, the numbers may be large, but it's grayscale. How much are you being influenced? All right, Robert, always a pleasure. We, uh, we won't leave it so long. Next time we'll have you back on the program. Let us know when uh, Hacking the Human Mind is available, and uh, we'll bring you back on the program. Thank you again. 
Thank you. Robert, Thank you. Robert Duncan, Ms. Steele, Nelson Thal. Thanks. All Thanks. Right. Good night. Check out the website for upcoming shows. That's Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T dot com. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, welcome, one and all, my extended radio family. And I want to once again welcome our new affiliate, WIMO 1300 AM Atlanta. WIMO 1300 AM Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, just keep them coming. Love to announce new affiliates, and uh, we've been doing a lot of that lately. So um, uh, I haven't set a, a goal, but hey, let's see if we can we can break ten by the by year's end. Ten new affiliates that would be great. I believe we now have uh, five, including our flagship here in uh, Toronto, the new AM740 Zuma Radio, which is where I am perched presently at 550 Queen Street East in the great city of Toronto. What we do on this program, if you're new to the program, is we uh, update consciousness and uh, we talk about political subterfuge, we talk about spycraft, we talk about cover-ups, but we also, we talk about the nature of matter and the mystery of consciousness And uh, from time to time, we delve into parallel realities, quantum physics, nanotechnology. That's where we're going in this hour. And uh, always uh, great to have uh, my next guest back on the program. It's been a while. Jim Elvidge holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He's applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures. He holds four patents in digital signal processing and has written articles for publications as diverse as Monitoring Times and the IEEE Transactions on Geoscience and Remote Sensing. Beyond the high-tech realm, Jim has years of experience as a musician, writer, truth seeker, 
That's why we have him on the program. He merged his technology skills with his love of music, developed one of the first PC-based digital music samplers, and co-founded Radio Amp, the first private label online streaming radio company. For many years, Jim has kept pace with the latest research theories and discoveries in the varied fields of subatomic physics, cosmology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and the paranormal. This unique knowledge base has provided the foundation for his first full-length book, The Universe Solved. Jim Elvidge, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me on again, and uh, congratulations on the new affiliates. That's very exciting. Thank you. Yes, yes, we're very, very thrilled. Uh, we should also point out the website is theuniversesolved.com, theuniversesolved.com. It's been a while, Jim. What have you been up to? Uh, well, a lot of the same stuff. Um, you know, keep busy with my my day job, and uh, of course, after hours, I you know continue the research into consciousness and the nature of reality and nanotech, and I keep up with brain-computer interfaces, quantum physics, all that kind of stuff. So it uh, keeps me busy, and uh, it's a very, very interesting, interesting world. You know, recently we've been talking about uh, mind control, and uh, we were looking at uh, the possibility that these, some of these uh, shooters, uh, James Egan Holmes and uh, Wade Page, the um, the uh, the perp in the uh, the Sikh temple shooting, the massacre in, uh, in Wisconsin, whether or not they may have been um, uh, mind controlled um, assassins or, or programmed uh, killers, if you will. Um, where do you think we are? In terms of, I mean, you mentioned sort of computer mind interfaces, and I don't know if if that would be involved in something like, you know, uh, creating a Manchurian candidate. But bring us up to speed. Where are we in terms of of computer mind interfaces? Where is the technology at? Yeah, actually, there's uh, so much going on in that area. In, in particular, things like um, artificial retinas. Uh, I think the it might be up to say 256 by 256 uh, pixels, kind of thing. Um, you know, and and. You know, it's very, very interesting, actually, when you kind of consider um, the artificial aspect of interfacing with our reality, you know, against what we, what we typically do. Um, we're some ways away from reproducing, you know, the ability to perceive things artificially the way our bodies do, but we're definitely heading in that direction. So an artificial retina, Jim, you mentioned 256 pixels by 256. What's a typical, let's say, computer screen? Um, well, it might be you know fifteen hundred by nine hundred something like that. Um, so it's you know it's it's certainly not quite there yet. But um, you know from a technology standpoint, this, this is something that follows tends to follow Moore's law. So um, things that it was just a couple of years ago, uh, sixteen by sixteen pixel artificial uh, retina uh, retinal implants were the state of the art, and now they're you know quite a bit beyond that. So you know at one point it was enough to be able to sort of see shadows and, and basic movement, and now it's enough to be able to discern objects. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely uh, ocular implants for the ears and, and other uh, ways of interfacing with the various cortexes of the brain, um, you, you know, you know, really start to, to call into question the ability of um, ultimately interfacing to the brain in such a way that you can sort of inject alternative realities. And, and these are some of the things that people have speculated about um, over time. Nick Bostrom, for example, has, has uh, you know, 
put forth the idea that since it's going to happen, since it's 15 or 20 years away, when, when we can actually inject an artificial reality into our senses, you know, how do we know that it hasn't already happened? And, you know, he uses kind of a philosophical, logical argument to say that it probably has. So let me go back to the, the artificial retinas. Uh, so you could, theoretically or practically, you could take one of these, uh, a pair of these artificial retinas, you could implant them in, it doesn't have, let's say it's a blind person, uh, and you could, you could then hook up something to that interface, uh, cameras or something, that would allow a blind person to, to, to see, to, to see his environment. It, now, mind you, it wouldn't have the resolution of a computer screen or a TV set, but it would be somewhat rudimentary, but you could give sight to the blind this way. Oh, absolutely, and, and this, is, this has been done now. Um, I, there, there may be certain categories of blindness that this kind of technique could, uh, could remedy, but um, certainly there have been uh, people who have been blind and uh, now have the ability to see, you know, a rudimentary level with these artificial retinas. Um, the latest one, I just looked it up, is uh, 1,500 diodes. So, you know, that, you know, is roughly, you know, maybe what, uh, I don't know, 40 by 40, something like that. So we're being told that... The, the resolution on one of these artificial retinas is about 256 by 256 pixels. Uh, but, I mean, do you believe that? Because I'm, I, I subscribe to the, the idea that whatever they, whoever they are, whatever they have, it's probably, you know, decades beyond what they're letting us know about. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Certainly if you've read things like Skunk Works and, and read up on some of the black ops programs that, uh, that, you know, comes out uh, many, many years after the fact, after things have been declassified. Um, you know, it, it does seem like technology at the really bleeding edge level that we don't hear about is probably 10 years or so beyond what we do hear about. So, um, yeah, definitely a very good point. So let's um, employ Moore's Law here, and, and, uh, but, but assume that, that um, the technology is far more advanced and that we are, in fact, living in a simulated reality. Um, what else, then, might they be able to do aside from these artificial retinas? What, I mean, how else could they create or program our reality for us? Well, I mean, if you, if you think about it, all of your sensory inputs come through the brain. And this is one of the areas where I've really been spending a little bit of time doing more research on recently. You know, we, we think of everything that we see as being our reality. Um, in reality, what's going on is there's a, uh, some electromagnetic radi radiation in the form of light that bounces off these objects that we're looking at, and it, um, you know, it, it imparts some energy on, on our retina, which converts it to effectively like you know, bits that our brain then processes. And, you know, frankly, Everybody's brain is a little bit different. Everybody's, you know, sense, sensory organs are a little bit different. And everybody's processing history is different. So um, I'm going to be biased based on things that I've seen before, experiences that I've had, you know, my history and experiences. Um, that's going to really color the way I perceive reality. So, you know, the, the question is, all this stuff that we see that we think is real out there, it's all just subjective reality. It's just based on what our brain is, is telling us that it sees. So, 
if it's possible to intercept any of these signals with things like brain-computer interfaces, uh, retinal implants, ocular implants, um, you know, nano devices that could, you know, potentially um, intercept your sensory signals, send them to a processing system, um, and then send a result back. Um, you know, our reality could be played with, and we would really have no idea that it isn't exactly what we think it is. In fact, it could be highly coordinated amongst most people so that we all tend to see the same thing and experience the same thing, and there may be some people that, for whatever reason, uh, maybe due to uh, some, uh, you know, problems that they have with, with their brain function or maybe due to... Uh, chance or who knows what, they're able to see something a little bit differently. In fact, you know, from a paranormal standpoint, it's, it's been shown that there are people who are much more sensitive to these paranormal effects than others. Um, and, and lest anybody, you know, from a scientific standpoint be listening and think that the paranormal, you know, kind of argument is, is, uh, is not really true, uh, the scientific research really does support that there is a uh, a subtle paranormal effect when it comes to precognition, when it comes to telepathy and these kinds of things. Um, there's really solid research that that supports that. Um, so, you know, it, 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 we could go down a lot of paths here, but I, I guess the point um, that I'm making is that technology will have the ability at some point to do things like erase memories, inject memories, um, inject experiences, um, upload experiences temporarily so that you can kind of, you know, forget about your, your past and then experience something new and then download the past and resume where you left off. All this kind of stuff is, you know, is, is definitely in our future. And the only question might be, is it in our present uh, and is it in our best interest? I mean, uh, in the, on the one hand, Jim, it sounds incredibly exciting uh, to think um, that, for example, you could give uh, a sight to the uh, to the blind. No more blindness, no more deafness. Um, but but think of the other applications or implications as well. It could be a nightmare scenario, and we'll uh, we'll discuss when we come back. Jim Elvidge is with us. The website is theuniversesolved.com. We'll be back in a moment. This conversation is starting to sound a whole lot like the movie The Matrix. Uh, Jim Elvidge is with us. We're talking about the possibility we are living in a simulated reality, our, a reality being programmed for us. Does the technology exist? Uh, Jim says, well, uh, we, we certainly are on, our, on the road uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to living in a simulated reality, but um, an argument could be made that we, we are, in fact, there now. Some have, um, have posited that. Uh, Jim, is it within, let's say, the realm of possibility, within our lifetime, that, that we could, people are talking, you know, this quest for immortality, that we could re-sleeve our consciousness, in other words, upload our consciousness, and then put it in another body? Yeah, I, you know, I have a slightly different point of view on that than, than some of the... Um uh, singularity folks do. Uh, I, I kind of think that consciousness really is something separate than an emergent property of brain function. Um, the assumption that you can upload your consciousness 
is based on the idea that your consciousness is coming from your brain function. Therefore, if you can reproduce everything that's going on in your brain, all of your memories, um, you know, and store that somewhere, that that should be sufficient to, uh, you know, kind of reanimate some other body, perhaps, by, by downloading it. But if you accept the idea that our consciousness is something that's out there, which I think there's a great deal of uh, scientific evidence for, um, then that whole scenario really isn't possible. Um, it, it, it's only possible that you could allow, as your consciousness, your soul or whatever, may allow it to transfer from vehicle to vehicle. You know what I mean? Um, so, right, so our consciousness exists outside our mind, in other words, exists outside of our bodies, outside of the brain. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the case. I mean, I know that's not the you know the scientific norm, and and most uh, AI researchers kind of believe that um, you know you develop a uh, you know a powerful enough computer with sophisticated enough learning software that it will become conscious. Um, I don't subscribe to that at all, really. I mean, we we have. Um, systems that are approaching the complexity of the human brain now, um, the world's fastest supercomputer, um, Sequoia, has a capability of like 16 petaflops, and uh, human brain capacity is somewhere in that range, 0.1 to 20 petaflops. Um, you know, of course, it has to run some learning software, but there is also plenty of neural net software and things like that to simulate brain functions. And there's nothing that, that indicates that any of these computers that have this, you know, amazing capability have suddenly emerged consciousness. Um, somebody could also argue that the Internet is about as complex as the human brain. You know, as of uh, late last year, the number of links on the web was equal to the number of synapses in, in a human brain, and arguably just as well interconnected. Um, but is the Internet conscious? Is it, is it starting to do its own thing? I don't think so. I think it still follows a you know, reductionist set of rules that, um, you know, that the, the people who build the servers and, and program the, the pages and the, you know, dynamic components um, are, are, you know, creating the, the structure for that. So I don't think there's anything, you know, that emerges from things as complicated as our brain just because it's that complicated. I, 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 I happen to agree with you. I think um, our consciousness... Um, our mind or our soul, as some of us uh, choose to call it, it does exist outside of our mind or outside of our brain, rather, outside of our body. And uh, uh, you can't replicate that, um, although the materialists uh, would, would, as you say, beg to differ. Now, in terms of artificial intelligence, um, where are we? Uh, you, you mentioned the Internet, uh, you know, approaching the, the, the um, I, I guess, the complexity of the, of the human mind or the number of connections and so forth. But uh, um, do you foresee uh, within our lifetime uh, robots that would be virtually indistinguishable from humans? Oh, absolutely. Um, again, I, I don't think that they would have true consciousness, but I believe that they could be programmed to learn and to evolve um, in in ways that we might not be able to predict. Uh, I mean, if you take something like uh, the game of life, if you've if you've seen that um, simulated, it, it's really hard to predict the kind of patterns that show up um, as a result of some very simple rules. Well, with a robot, you're putting in some pretty complicated rules, and if those rules have feedback paths in them and, and allow that robot to uh, to learn and, and develop new behaviors or uh, 
you know, new ways of communicating or something like that. Um, certainly, they're they're going to do things that we don't expect, and therefore they're going to have the appearance of being alive. Um, but again, I think it's materialist. I think it's reductionist from a uh, from the robotic standpoint. Um, they don't really have free will. They're still following rules. It's just that those rules, when they, you know, when when they when when they're viewed kind of at a higher level, they're a little bit unpredictable. It's kind of like um, uh, fractals. You know, fractals are based on some very simple rules. You can write a program that uh, creates fractal images, but the images are so incredibly complex. I mean, people had no idea that that complexity would emerge from something as simple as the basic rules that that drive a fractal program. Um, same thing is, is going to happen with, with robots. They, they will appear live, they will appear to learn, and, and you know, they will learn based on the, the rules and the capabilities that we give them in their, uh, uh, in their construct program. But, but you could conceivably, uh, could you not, Jim, create a robot that has the appearance of self-awareness. Uh, in other words, um, it could sure. fake it. It could fake it to the, to the extent that we would, it would be virtually indistinguishable from another, another human. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, and I think that, you know, you can, I mean, they've, they've done that now even with, with some very crude chat bots and some of the things that you've probably seen on the web where they, you know, appear to have emotions. Of course, that's programmed in there. You know, if you say something to them that's insulting, they can tell you that you hurt their feelings. But did you really hurt their feelings? No. It was a, um, it was a, a phrase that was stored in some file that they pulled out based on, you know, the input that you just, you just gave them, some keywords perhaps from the, from the words that you said to them. So, you know, ultimately, yeah, they're not really thinking. They're, they're thinking, they're processing but they're not, uh, they don't have free will, they don't have um, consciousness in the sense that humans do, and I don't believe they ever will. But they could give the outward appearance of having all of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jim Elvidge is with us, theuniversesolved.com, and the book is The Universe Solved. Uh, this is sort of delving into, I guess, an area of bioengineering, but uh, let me throw it out there because uh, you may have a comment on that. And, and a scientist recently created I mean we are creating new life forms now they recently created an artificial squid they took a, a, a cell from a rat's heart and they've created this this uh, artificial jellyfish I guess or a squid uh, are you concerned about about this or do you think that we should do in science whatever we are capable of doing yeah, that's a really good question I I am concerned about it I I think that um, you know, genetically modified organisms, for example, I think it's an absolutely atrocious idea. You know, we, we, we create these things because we can, because it, it helps some company get better profits, and we, you know, shove some of the research under the rug that shows that it can be harmful to us. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these avenues of inquiry, you know, nanotech has dangers, um, genetic modification has dangers, artificial life has dangers. All these things um, certainly have a potentially a dark side. And, and I don't think we're really that good about putting in place safeguards ahead of time that can prevent, you know, some disaster running amok. Um, I, I, I happen to believe that it probably won't happen, 
because if we are living in some sort of programmed reality, which it, you know, the evidence seems to support, then the, the likelihood that we're going to get some doomsday scenario and bring the whole thing to, to an end is pretty small. Um, of course, we could always reboot, I suppose, and, and reboot our consciousness, and we'd, we wouldn't be the wiser. Um, but, you know, it just seems to me that if you look over history, we've always come very close to, uh, or people have thought that we've come close to a disaster, a nuclear disaster, or uh, a population explosion, or, um, you know, some virus getting out of the bag, you know, a bird, bird flu that, that's airborne, and these kind of things. They never quite turn out to be as bad as we think they are. Um, and it may be just sort of that evening effect that the you know, the great cosmic program puts in place. Every uh, every year there's a new edition of uh, a John Madden uh, football, the, um, the folks at Electronic Arts, uh, EA Sports, uh, uh, put out this new, you know, whether it's uh, baseball or, or hockey. And, and now, if you've seen the commercials on TV for EA Sports or any of these, even these online uh, games now, whether it's Warcraft, the the... The image is so strikingly real, and there's a fluidity to the to the to the uh, these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're getting to the point where you you almost think you're looking at something real. Absolutely, it's, it's really kind of exciting. And, and uh, Electronic Arts, by the way, the building is right across from the uh, complex where where I live. And oh, he's not used, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've I've used the. Um, uh, the Madden series as kind of an example, uh, even in, in my book and um, a lot of the interviews that I've done, because they really do kind of push the state of the art in terms of realism. It's It's been a couple of years even since I've walked into a, a Best Buy or some electronic superstore, and, and I couldn't tell if there was a football game on or if somebody was playing, you know, Madden 2010 or 11 or whatever it was. But, yeah, every year they get... Um, more smooth and more realistic, and it's really, really amazing. And and if you can imagine, you know, this kind of simulation, um, well, let's say you had there, there are headsets now that have a, a fairly high number of pixels as well. Uh, I think I think the uh, the old headsets were maybe 640 by 480, and there are some newer ones that are you know much higher resolution, maybe approaching the resolution of your eyes, um, and they're wide angle as well so you see things in your periphery so you put those on and you watch something like you know Madden 2013 or uh, some of the more sophisticated um, you know fantasy simulations and it's just really hard to tell from a visual perspective that 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 you're not immersed in some reality you know the sound of sound quality can be just as good as is the way your ears hear normally um, so between sound and the visual simulation, yeah, we're almost there. And yet there is something almost creepy about it. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a movie that came out, a Christmas movie, um, animated. It was called The Polar Express with uh, Tom Hanks. And the, uh, the, the movie, the storyline was a little boy uh, doesn't believe in Santa Claus anymore. One night he wakes up and there's this train that comes barreling through his neighborhood and Tom Hanks... Uh, uh, is the conductor tells them to get on and and uh, they're on their way to the North Pole, and uh, this adventure begins. But you know it didn't do that well at the box office because 
the um, one of the theories was the animation was too advanced, and and people were kind of creeped out by it. I don't know if you have, if you saw that movie, but I get the same sense with some of these EA Sports. Uh, it's almost too real. It's unsettling. Whereas um, uh, an animated movie that's a little more crude or rudimentary, uh, they tend to do a little bit better because we can certainly distinguish. Okay, that's a cartoon, and then this is real life. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a there's a term for that. I think it's called uncanny valley. So when you're on one side of the uncanny valley, the you know clearly not realistic side of it, um, you don't mind. You don't mind playing these highly pixelated games um, because you know they're not real. And then you kind of merge into the uncanny valley where it does feel creepy because it's very realistic but not quite. Um, but the valley disappears when you get even more realistic. So at some point, we come out of the uncanny valley. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before we do. And I'd also say that the uncanny valley is different for different cultures. The Japanese culture, they're much more um, accepting of robotics and, and these um, strange faces that are almost human. I don't know if you've seen some of the... Uh, you know, uh, robotic facial um, creations that the Japanese labs have done, but they look very, very close to being human, and they're creepy to us, but they're not so much to them. They're they're much more an accepting culture of of robotics than we are. So, yeah, Uncanny Valley is is a... We're we're in it now, and we will uh, pop out of it at some point, and certain cultures will pop out of it before other cultures. <laughs> and, and again, if, if uh, this is what EA Sports is releasing to the general public, again, mm-hmm. I go back to this uh, a, a very important point. I think what whether it's DARPA uh, or some other uh, group has tucked away somewhere on a shelf not telling us about is, is maybe on the order of 10 or 100 times more sophisticated, and that I find absolutely frightening. We'll come back. Jim Elvidge, The Universe Solved, will open up the phone lines and make them available. If you have questions and comments, get involved in the conversation. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. And uh, coming up on the uh, the program, in the not-too-distant future, we'll uh, take a look at the uh, Freemasons. Are they a misunderstood fraternity or a satanic cult, have some have suggested. And uh, we'll also take a look at um, the uh, the uh, uprising in Syria, which follows, of course, uh, similar uprisings in places like Tunisia and Egypt and Libya. And I'll speak to an independent researcher who says that the Arab Spring, uh, which is continuing on into the summer and fall of 2012, is... Um, nothing like we've been told. It's not some popular uprising orchestrated by social media savvy um, young uh, young people, you know, thirsting for democracy. It's all been um, orchestrated by the CIA and NATO intelligence. He calls it the fake Arab Spring. That's all upcoming on The Conspiracy Show. Right now, Jim Elvidge stays with us. From theuniversesolved.com. Nanotechnology, Jim, it's one of those buzz terms uh, that gets tossed around, and a lot of people, myself included, don't really understand what it's all about, aside, you know, my understanding is limited to the idea that we're talking about, you know, self-replicating miniature robots. But what is nanotech? Yeah, so, so that um, self-replicating idea is, is an aspect of it. Um, nanotech just means 10 to the minus ninth of a meter or one billionth of a meter, 
Um, so we've been doing things at a millionth of a meter, uh, kind of a, a micron, for, for quite some time. You know, the, if, you, if you hear of different, you know, micron level um, uh, processes in terms of uh, chip creation, uh, we're able to manipulate um, matter at that level. And, and nanotechnology is taking it one thousandth deeper. So it's kind of significant because it's getting to the point of sizes of molecules. So, for example, a, a, you know, a DNA molecule has a diameter around two nanometers. So when we talk around about manipulating things at a nanometer level, we're talking about you know, putting molecules together. And that's, that's really interesting because that allows us to program things that can interact with molecules or cells or um, components of the body that um, otherwise we couldn't do. It's kind of like, you know, when we do things like treat diseases with drugs or, um, you know, whatever practices have, have been done so far, it's, it's like taking a blunt hammer and trying to split an atom. Um, you, you know, maybe not quite that bad, but we're, you know, we, we try things and we see if they work and then we just use them. Um, and they all have side effects and, and, and so on and so forth. But with nanotech, you could effectively really program something at a very, very tiny level to seek out and destroy the, you know, the disease or the irregular cells or whatever it is that it's meant to change. Are they so actually little robots, though? And how, if so, how would you build a robot that small? Uh, well, well, that's one aspect of it. Again, nanotech just means manipulating things at that level. So there's lots like, um, you know, carbon nanotubes and, and things like that that have um, interesting material um, aspects to them that can be used for strengthening things or, you know, preventing materials from, from uh, you know, soiling or whatever. Um, Mopping up yeah, an oil spill? Yeah, well, exactly. But, um, you know, when you talk about robotics, then that takes it to a different level, um, nanomachines, where, where you're actually programming things at a very small level. Uh, we can, you know, we can definitely manipulate, um, you know, objects on a molecular level now. So uh, we can program small robots at that level with some instructions to do certain things. Now we have a nanobot. We have something that small that can be programmed to perform some activity based on receiving some input. Um, and that, you know, you can imagine the, the, you know, myriad applications for something like that, good and bad. Well, if, what if they're self-replicating? We have this doomsday scenario. I think even the, one of the pioneers of nanotech, Eric Drexler, uh, talked about this in his book, Engines of Creation, where you have these, Great imagine group. billions of, of these self-replicating robots, and it, all of a sudden it goes awry. And instead of, you know, doing the job that, for which they were built, like I mentioned, mopping up an oil spill, they right. start consuming everything, all the matter on the earth. Right, and it's, it's kind of like, to, to me, it, it sounds a lot like the, you know, the specter of... Um, you know, sort of like a, a nuclear Armageddon type of scenario happening in the Linear Hadron Collider because we're, you know, playing with energies we don't fully understand. You know, people much smarter than I do who are experts in that area tell us that it's safe because of this reason or that reason. But, you know, I agree that it, it seems like if it's possible to program something that does nothing but replicate itself um, and 
you know, you have to you have to be able to turn that off at some point. So if there's no fail-safe mechanism, you know, how do you, you know, how do you turn that off? I mean, I could imagine that in order for it to replicate itself, it has to have material. So where is it getting that material from? From its environment. So is it just kind of breaking down everything that it sees and 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 building it up? I don't know if that's even possible, but um, it does sound like a you know kind of a way out scary scenario. Um, All right. Well, let's talk about some upside of nanotechnology when we come back. Jim Elvidge, my guest, The Universe Solved. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, Jim, uh, let's, let's uh, try to get a little more positive then and talk about uh, the upside of, of nanotechnology. You, you talked about, uh, you know, the, having these, unleashing these, these nanotech robots inside, I guess, our bloodstream and they could attack, you know, a particular, let's say, a cancer cell or something. So it sounds like uh, eventually we could replace invasive surgery by just a little pill containing some of these self-replicating robots. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, this has been done, uh, something called nanoshells that travel through the bloodstream, they, and they can accumulate in cancerous tissues, um, and you could attach you know, chemical medicines to them that would target those bad cells only. Um, but that's, I mean, that was sort of a, uh, a 2009 technology. Uh, more sophisticated would be taking uh, robotic nanoparticles and actually have specific targets. Um, there's one called IT101. It's a 30 nanometer particle that's been tested in some human safety trials. But so yeah, things like that, fighting disease and cancer is definitely a um, you know a possible uh, upside to nanotech. Cleaning up environmental disasters, uh, maybe global warming. You know, l- releasing some uh, some some well programmed bots into the atmosphere and breaking down uh, you know some of the um, uh, the global warming agents, uh, or you know, I, I could even imagine that you know, if if you had the the right technology um, to seek out, say, um, cores of nuclear weapons, you know, all it would need to do is convert U two thirty five into something that's benign, and then your uh, your nuke would never explode. So it could theoretically be a nuclear deterrent. And I can imagine that at some point, if somebody has the uh, the wherewithal and the and the technology to unleash that on their enemies, then that could be more of a uh, you know more of a threat. You know, you could annihilate your your enemy's nuclear deterrence, and then you ha- still have your own. So you could imagine kind of nano wars. Um, this was actually something that was written about by Neil Stevenson in the book uh, Diamond Age. So if, if people are interested in that kind of thing, so he really raised some interesting ideas about um, wars with nanoparticles that that could happen in the future. And now uh, we we appear to be having wars uh, fought sort of at the uh, computer virus uh, level. Oh, yeah. I know you have a, a you know a background in computing and so forth. There is there is a a virus that was unleashed into Iran's nuclear. Uh, a program where, for the first time, you had a, a virus that would actually 
uh, cause a mechanical device, uh, I guess in this case it was the centrifuge, uh, to fail. Um, have you looked into sort of the, what did they call that, Stuxnet? Was that what it was called, that, that program? Yeah, I think so. I, I read a little bit about that at one point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that all the things that, that people say can't be done. <laughs> you never say the word can't, right? Eventually somebody's going to figure out how to do uh, exactly what uh, people on a, on a particular time say cannot be done. Uh, parallel universes. Uh, uh, Jim, I know this is an area that you like to delve into. It's one of my favorite uh, topics. Uh, recently, well, I guess it's been a year or so, at Oxford, some mathematicians came out and said that the the multiverse theory of the uh, of the universe, the multiverse theory is correct, meaning that uh, you know there are there are an infinite number of of parallel universes. Uh, out there, what did you? What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it all depends on how you look at the data. I mean, um, Ecoki, which is a, a research facility, a physics research facility in in Austria, um, came to the conclusion a few years ago that reality doesn't exist unless it's observed. Um, I mean, you know, down to the the microscopic level and the macroscopic level. So, and they determined that to an order of like 80 orders of magnitude of certainty. So there, I have read research that is convincing, you know, for multiverse research that's convincing against multiverse research for reality against reality. Um, and it really kind of depends on the way the experiment is is constructed, I guess. But you know, my my belief is that the this idea of infinite uh, reality is, is doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I, I understand where it comes from and why it's a kind of a convenient alternative to the Copenhagen interpretation in quantum mechanics. But you know, if you if you think about all of the evidence that our our reality is is under a uh, program control, there's no reason that you would make it infinitely more complex um, to have something create an infinite number of realities requires an infinite amount of energy. And I just don't think that our, our universe is infinite in that way. I think that um, what has been created is finite to some level. It's huge, but um, it does have some bounds. And therefore, the idea of infinite realities can't fit within that paradigm. I, I want to go back to something you just mentioned, the, the theory that, uh, that reality doesn't exist unless it's observed. Uh, this is something that I've always wondered about. The moment that you exit a room and shut the door, does that mean then that everything in that room just collapses like a waveform? It's not being observed, so it doesn't exist? No, I don't think so. I, I think e- even in sort of standard scientific theory, what they're saying is that if something hasn't yet been observed, as soon as it is observed, the waveform collapses, and you know its position and, and all of that. Um, but then it doesn't go into an uncollapsed state when you stop looking at it. You know what I mean? So, but, but if you think about this from the other way around, think about it from the, the standpoint of, you know, if I were the designer of a universe, if I were creating a universe, how would I do it? Do I need to create the, the detailed structure inside a tree if nobody's ever going to cut that tree open you know I, no i only need to create what's observable um, i don't need to create anything else until somebody tries to observe it then my program has to dynamically create that that would be 
you know, huge orders of magnitude simpler than something that creates detailed structure of every component throughout the universe. Um, so if I'm going to create a, you know, a fantasy world or a universe or anything like that, I'm going to do it dynamically that way. And if you f- follow those rules, it turns out that everything that we experience in quantum mechanics, entanglement and you know, the observer effect and all of those kind of anomalies all make total sense from the standpoint of, you know, an efficient programmed reality. Right. In other words, you only, you only need to create those complex components if they're going to be observed. Otherwise, exactly. it's like a movie set. Uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, of, of uh, the Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. And every once in a while, you know, uh, something happens on his, in his programmed reality. Uh, an elevator uh, uh, opens and he, ha- he ca- catches a fleeting glimpse of the fact that there's no actual elevator car there. He is, he's sort of seeing behind the set. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, the example I've used before is like a cup of coffee that you have. You don't have to model every subatomic particle in that cup of coffee to interact with it the way that we normally do to generate the smell, the, you know, the visual of the you know, coffee swirling around the cup, maybe a little bubble, the way that it tastes. That requires a certain amount of information, and maybe it's 10 megabytes of information. But the total potential information content in a cup of coffee is probably you know, 100 trillion megabytes or, or more. So there's a re- ratio of maybe 100 trillion in compression that can be applied to an ordinary object, um, you know, just, just to make sure that it's observable. Now, as soon as somebody wants to isolate an atom in that cup of coffee and look at it, the program's going to have to figure out a definitive position for that atom, which results in the collapse of a wave function, or, you know, what they call decoherence in quantum mechanics. Um, in addition, the behavior of that atom from that point on might be under control of the program in, in much of the way that uh, a finite state machine works. So, um, you know, atoms, subatomic particles may follow a certain set of very simple rules, but those rules don't have to get kicked off until somebody's really observing them, and they could be kicked off using a, a random number generator and, and picking some components, and, and thereafter the um, you know, the way they behave is, is very predictable. If you have two particles right next to each other, you might as well use the same random number seed to kick off their behavior patterns, and that might be what entanglement is. So, so all of these things, they, they make sense when you think about them, you know, sort of from the opposite standpoint, from the idea of creating a reality. Um, if you create a reality, you have to have things like entanglement and decoherence. Are you uh, are you a positive, uh, uh, hopeful about the future, or are you um, fearful? Uh, a little bit of both. I you know I, I think I'm I'm not as fearful as some of the doomsday uh, types that are out there for the reasons we talked about before. That I think there's sort of an evening effect to our reality, um, and you know take take for example the the specter of the collapsing dollar. Well. You know, if the dollar collapses, you know, what, what's to say the dollar is going to collapse before the euro or the yuan or, you know, any other w- world currency? Um, and if all currencies collapse at the same time, then there has to be something in place to facilitate trade and commerce. So, you know, it, it's all, it's kind of all relative, isn't it? You know, I, I think that 
whatever com- countries are uh, the most in debt, they're going to have the hardest time initially. And then, although there may be sort of a domino effect, um, I think the whole world can't come to a total collapse. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. But that's what gets predicted by those who are, you know, sort of more, you know, on the on the you know negative side of of the fence. What about the the the, um, the other area of huge concern, and that is is peak oil. That that we have in fact. Um, uh, now arrived at a point where even if we wanted to uh, throw the remaining reserves or resource, uh, this non-renewable resource, into converting to another form of, of uh, whether it's hydrogen or so forth, in order to retool, now there's not enough energy available to, to effectively do that. So we're at a point of no return. Yeah, you know, I I just don't see that as as a problem, and, and for a number of reasons, a you know, oil could be abiotic. I I don't think anybody's really ruled that out yet. In fact, I used to take um, I, I took an astronomy class from Thomas Gold, who was a an, an early um, advocate of the abiotic theory. Very very smart guy, you know, and he, he he came to his conclusions logically, and it was definitely against the mainstream, which scares a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who build their careers on some, you know, foundation of, of uh, you know, of beliefs, um, and then somebody goes against that, and then they have to attack them. So, you know, there, that's a possibility. You know, I've heard that there are oil reserves in the United States that exceed the oil reserves in Saudi Arabia. I don't know if that's true, but... I've done a number of shows on abiotic oil, uh, yeah. and, and I think there's something to it as well. We're, uh, we're certainly behaving as if we have abiotic oil. Uh, Jim, listen, uh, always a delight having you. Let's not uh, wait so long and to, to, before we have you back on. And uh, what are you working on? Yeah, so um, actually kind of diving into the nature of matter, you know, this whole thing with the Higgs boson has uh, really got me very interested in, in what matter is all about. And, you know, the more I look into it, the more I realize that matter is really nothing but information. And our world, you know, at the deepest level is just data. And that's just one more bit of evidence for the programmed reality model. All right. That and the nature of consciousness. Uh, all right, let's to, discuss uh, matter yeah. uh, when we have you back on. Thanks for this, Jim. would love to. Thank you, Richard. Great to be on the show. Thank you. Jim Elvidge, TheUniverseSolved.com. Thanks to Dave Gaskin for technical production. And uh, back next week, we'll talk about the fake Arab Spring. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.